You are listening to Coronavirus Special, COVID-19 and Shifting Trajectories of History, a conversation with Yvonne Krostev, brought to you by EBRD. So hello, good afternoon, and welcome to our digital event on the long-term implications of the coronavirus pandemic. We've called the event, which has been organized by the EBRD's Office of the Chief Economist, COVID-19 and the Shifting Trajectories of History. My name is Marcus Warren, And forgive me for quoting from the Communist Manifesto, but it really does feel sometimes as if all that is solid is melting into air. Who better to tell us what comes next than Ivan Kristev, chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies, Sofia, and permanent fellow at the IWM in Vienna. He is the author of several books, and the next one is about Europe and the pandemic. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes' time. Now, Ivan assured me earlier that he didn't backdrop, he didn't download that amazing backdrop that we can see on the screen. But um, Ivan, I understand you are joining us from Bulgaria. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. Great. Great. Welcome. Uh, we're also joined by my colleague, EBRD Chief Economist, Beata Yavorczyk. Uh, she's also a professor of economics at Oxford. Good afternoon, Beata. Hello, Marcus. Hi. And Martin Sanbu the F2 columnist who writes Free Lunch and is also the author of another forthcoming book and we'll discuss that later as well, I'm sure. Hello, Martin. Hello, very nice to be with you. Likewise. Uh, just a few housekeeping, message, housekeeping messages for our Zoom audience. Um, please make sure you mute yourself and turn the video off. Uh, you can put questions to the panel in the chat box and please introduce yourself when you post your question. Um, Ivan, your new book, slightly shrouded with mystery. Um, we know that it's uh, about Europe and the pandemic. Tell us more. Do we have a, a working title, uh, main argument, uh, publication date? Just, just fill us in about where we stand with this book. Listen, let's start with the fact that people are doing different crazy things these days. So writing such an early book is one of them. So I do believe at least it's a harmless form of craziness. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a short book first. So uh, we're talking about 15,000 words. And uh, it is uh, called, Is It Tomorrow Yet? Is It Tomorrow Yet? That sounds like a brilliant yeah. lockdown title, if I may say so, when it's yeah. always today, never uh, tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so uh, from this point of view, what I try to do, and uh, this was, uh, there was an article that I did in the beginning of the crisis and uh, my German publisher was very much pushing me to do it. But obviously when you stay locked for 50 days and we have this beautiful view that you have for 50 days and don't forget what was the famous Brodsky's definition of prison experience, shortage of space made for by the surplus of time. So suddenly, uh, I was very much in this situation, and I tried to uh, uh, to reflect. Uh, it was very much focused on Europe, and there are four major arguments that basically I want uh, to present uh, and to discuss. The first is that over a period of a week, it took a virus, and you have first European Union being put on hold with uh, borders between member states being brought. Uh, There was a moment in which basically nothing was moving. In March compared to February, the flights in Europe uh, went down 93%. Uh, And then democracy also was on hold because basically you can see all these parliaments that went into a quarantine and you have the state of emergencies. 
and capitalism was on hold uh, for a while. So my first argument is that one of the effects of the virus is radicalization of the imagination of the people. Imagine that you are a climate change activist. You have been dreaming all the time to put all these planes to land them uh, forever, but you never believe that this is going to happen and it happened very easily. And imagine that you're a radical nationalist, you have been dreaming for closing the borders between the EU member states, but even you didn't believe that this is going to happen and suddenly the borders were closed. And I do believe that this radicalization of the imagination of different groups in different directions is one of the first effects. Many things that till yesterday, even when we were talking about them, which were not perceived as doable, suddenly starts to be perceived as doable. Uh, and this is the first thing that and the transformation that is happening in the heads of the people. And it is uh, not a secret that normally people are governed uh, by the weakness of their imagination. So from this point of view, we have a major transformation. And secondly, also you have a lot of people, not all of them, a lot of people were not able to stay at home, but staying at home, you start to ask the questions which you normally don't ask yourself. Uh, and from this point of view, pandemic is a kind of a very special experience because it's a kind of a suffering which is arbitrary, which is without meaning. It's not easily to make sense of it. The second story is that political governments were facing a kind of an interesting dilemma. In order to convince people to stay at home and basically to try to get control over the, uh, the pandemic, you should convince people that there is something totally new, something exceptional, something that people have never seen in their life before. On the other side, in order to basically convince people that situation is under control, you should convince the people that in a certain way there is something familiar, we know how to deal with this, we have been dealing with this before. And here for me is the first risk. Seen from afar, COVID-19, particularly after this first uh, months of lockdowns and so on, very much resembles the return of the three previous crises that you experienced in the last 10 years. If you basically see as the state of emergency and some of the legislation that have been introduced as the response, particularly on the level of surveillance and restrictions of uh, rights, it very much looks like as the return of the war on terror. Many of this legislation basically have the logic which was not far away from this. If you see basically of uh, the closing of the borders and the talk about nationalism, many people basically have the feeling that this is back to the refugee crisis of 2015. And of course, on the economic side, the moment when people start talking about Corona bonds, you know that we are back to the discussions that was very much typical for the financial crisis. My argument was that these three crises, uh, this very much, you have this feeling of return, but this is a very deceptive, uh, Feeling. And let's start with uh, first with the war on terror. It's totally different to have a surveillance and this type of virus uh, tracking apps on one level on which you know about them and which basically are protecting you also from yourself and infecting others. And the type of the surveillance that we know from, for example, United States after 9-11. And if you talk even about nationalism, and this is one of the chapters of my book, is very much about the difference between the type of ethnic nationalism which came particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, but not only uh, triggered by the refugee crisis and the type of a state at home nationalism that we saw during this crisis. Refugee crisis brought very strong type of a ethnicity, cultural war type of a nationalism. Well, suddenly this crisis is very territorial. 
who belongs is not who was born here, who belongs is who is resident here at this very moment. It was not by accident that Portugal basically made everybody residents till July 1st in the morning when they locked down. So suddenly a Bulgarian living outside of Bulgaria, if I had decided to stay uh, in Vienna, I was going to be of no interest to the Bulgarian government because what you're trying to do with social distancing and others, it was very territorial. And from this point of view, it was much less articulated in cultural and ethnic terms, uh, which was uh, the case in the previous crisis. And when it goes back to the financial crisis, and of course, Beata and others being here, uh, I'll try to be very short on this, you know, not to expose my ignorance. But one of the most important thing is that, to a great extent, the global financial crisis in Europe was the crisis of the Eurozone. This is not the case anymore. For example, during the global financial crisis, a country like Poland even didn't have a recession. Now, because of the lockdowns, all European economies uh, are very much uh, uh, in danger. And what is also critically important, going back to the effect and comparing with the refugee crisis, in the refugee crisis, the fear was of all these migrants who are going to come. But if you are working in the agricultural sector in Germany or France these days, the fear is totally the opposite. The fear is of all these East Europeans who are not going to come because it appears that there are these 300,000 seasonal workers, which are critically important uh, for the asparagus uh, uh, harvest uh, taking place. So I do believe trying to keep the novelty of the crisis is very, very important. And just two additional points which were important for me in the book, and they're much more closer to things that I know better. And this is particularly these uh, expectations that this crisis is going to give an answer to the question who is doing better. Type of a big data authoritarian regimes like China or liberal democracies. And at least for what we see at the moment, and I have been trying to read some of the uh, also empirical data that colleagues are trying to collect these days, I don't believe that the nature of the regime on this first public health part of the crisis is the most important factor when it comes to how the governments perform. It appears that previous experience with uh, this type of epidemics, it appears that the social trust in society and basically the uh, bureaucracy and the functional state are much more important. Uh, so when people start to say that uh, this crisis is particularly favorable to the authoritarian regimes, I'm not particularly convinced. And I'm going to give you one example. It's true that uh, pandemic infects societies with fear and fear of work uh, for this type of regimes. But normally authoritarian leaders likes crisis that they can manufacture themselves because they're in control of this crisis. Well, this crisis put constraints and it is not by accident that people like Bolsonaro or Lukashenko are one of the most kind of a strong uh, advocates that the crisis does not exist because this is not a crisis that they like. And if for democracy, there are going to be many problems coming from this crisis, there are no problems rooted in the fact that we had a state of emergency being introduced in some of our countries. I do believe the biggest problem for democracy is going to come if the period of the social distancing is going to stay for a longer time. And if people cannot meet for more than 50 or 100 people, because democracy very much depends on the crowds. Paradoxically, I know that in 1930s, the crowds, the masses, this was the fears about democracy. But, uh, and this is my last argument, if you go and look at the elections, elections are great as representing, but also misrepresenting. You who have a very strong kind of a idea about certain things in society, 
have one vote and me who are not interested in it has the same vote too. So elections does not allow for people to represent the intensity of their feeling about the situation. And here where the street politics is critically important, it's not by accident that in the last 10 years we have a, a lot of uh, public protest, a lot of people on the streets in more than 90 countries in the world, there was a mass protest. And imagine for two or three or four years, this type of a mass protest disappearing from the democratic landscape, then we can have a problem. And the major problem is going to be that people are not going to be sure anymore that they're living in a democracy. Let's stop here. Ivan, that was a, that was a tour de force. Um, you did write about six weeks ago that it was still very early days, uh, still very early days to speculate about the political imp impact of COVID-19. Um, you've now not just done that, you've written a whole book on the subject. Um, just to go back to your first point, um, you talked about the radicalization of the imagination. Um, it does seem that all our lives are on hold at the moment. And I think that's the point you're trying to make, that while they are on hold, people's imaginations are um, roaming free. I suppose my question is, imagination is one thing, but what about the ability to actually push through change when, as this eases? Imagination is one thing, but what about the actual ability to push through change in, in the future landscape? Well, it's a great question. And it's very much uh, uh, related to the problem how basically the politics is going to be transformed. Because what you're seeing these days, and I do believe this is one of the paradoxes of this situation, is that one of the important things that has changed is that on one level, you have a crisis that basically can be easily interpreted as a crisis of globalization and basically crisis that triggers certain level of deglobalization. You see certain type of a global supply chains that have been disrupted. You can see a much more mistrust in the idea of the economic interdependency in general. At the same time, people who are staying locked in their apartment, they became more cosmopolitan than ever before. For example, this is the only moment in my life in which I can watch television on all the languages that I don't know as a prime time news and I know what they're talking about. Uh, suddenly, yeah, democracy takes the form of a dictatorship of comparisons. I'm staying in my apartment. I cannot go on the street. Basically, the opposition has disappeared from our politics in most of the countries. But every day I compare the performance of my government on the level of infected, on the level of testing, on the level of economic performance with what is happening in the neighboring countries and everywhere in the world. We became so globalized that John Hopkins University became basically the database, the most reference points to everybody else. And I do believe this is a strange effect in which you have a crisis, which is pushing for certain level of deglobalization on the level of a real world, and at the same time, a kind of a much more globalizing the comparisons, the mind of a people who never have been very much part of it. So when I do believe that things are going to change, I don't believe that things are going to change because one vision or the other vision is going to prevail. I do believe that what is going to happen in the real world is that they're going to be an attempt to go back to the normal, and then we're going to discover that we cannot go back to the normal. And from this point of view, this is going to be a change that can go in a very different directions. And I do believe in different parts of the world, it will go in different directions. Uh, also, and this is also one of the paradoxes because I ended my book not with lessons, but with paradoxes is that paradoxically, if you're going to ask globally minded people who support open trade, open borders, out of the crisis that they have choose, which is the more globalization friendly one, 
It's not the war. It's not even big migration. Pandemic is going to come first because it's not one state against the other. It demands a cooperative uh, uh, response. It's very much about returning trust in science, in rationality. And what makes me quite pessimistic is to see that even comparing with the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, this level of international cooperation is very late in this crisis. Thank you. Uh, just a reminder, if you're listening to the recording of this, we are discussing COVID-19 and the, its long-term impacts on, on the world we live in. Our special guest is coming from Bulgaria, Ivan Kristev. Uh, also with us, we have the EBRD's Chief Economist, Biata Yavorczyk, and Martin Sambu of the FT. Biata, I'm now going to turn to you. Um, what your initial reactions to Ivan's arguments? Is your imagination also radicalized while the rest of your life is on hold? It is indeed. So let me pick up on one of the points Ivan made. Um, impossible now becomes possible and it becomes reachable. Um, you know, even before the crisis, um, legitimacy, legitimacy of international institutions has been undermined, undermined by populists who have done this uh, quite on purpose. Before the crisis, rising inequality has already been turning people against globalization. So now, as we will be coming out of this crisis, I think there will be rethinking of the social contract. I think people will be willing um, to pay higher taxes in exchange for more provision, more insurance, more services provided by the state. And that means that COVID could, could turn out to be an unexpected cure to international tax ailments. So let me elaborate. If people expect more from the state, state needs to spend more, states will emerge more indebted from the crisis, that one thing is definitely sure, they will be looking for sources of revenue. And people will be willing to pay more if they perceive taxation as fair. And this will create impetus for um, clamping down on legal tax avoidance. Last November, G20 and OECD floated two proposals on what could be done. One of these proposals involved countries taxing firms that have no physical presence in their tax jurisdictions. Another proposal that was floated was a minimum global tax rate, corporate tax rate. And I think now there will be some appetite to actually implement these rules. Uh, my understanding is that uh, some Eastern European countries are urging the EU to clamp down on tax avoidance. And this is something that could actually prove very popular with voters could actually restore legitimacy of um, international institutions. Ivan, your reaction to that? Have we found the cure for the problems with international tax accountability? No, but I very much agree with Beata in the following. The ideas about taxation that have been around for a while. And people always had a very strong arguments why this could not happen. And now suddenly you have kind of the feeling that something radical should happen. 
And of course, different people have a different ideas what is going to happen. And I do believe it's going to be not one idea. They're going to be a kind of a battle of what is going on. They're going to people who are going to claim that it's much lowering the taxes than increasing the taxes that should be response to this crisis. But particularly in Europe, I do believe that uh, uh, Beate is absolutely right. Uh, we are so much now discovered how much we are dependent on the internet and all these things and how much more things we're doing through them. Uh, so taxing these companies could come up as one of the consensuses that otherwise uh, was going to be very problematic before a profound change like this. Thank you. Martin, Martin Sambu of the FT, if we can turn to you now. Um, I know you've written a lot about the what sort of recovery we're going to build when this ends. But let's, let's hear your thoughts, your initial reaction to uh, Ivan's arguments and the, uh, the content of his book, as we've heard it. I, I think my thoughts are very much in line with some of the things that, that have just been said. Uh, so maybe I can just kind of start by landing on one thing that came up in both Ivan's and, and Beata's comments. Um, Ivan, I think, said we're not going to go back to where we were. No matter what happens next as we come out of this crisis, we're not going to be in the same place as we were beforehand. Uh, so that is this sort of tremendous openness, because if we're not going back to where we were before, it is intellectually, and I would argue sort of practically, much more open to us to choose where we want to go if we manage to do that as, as societies. I mean, one example Beata gave was uh, in terms of how we treat international taxation. But, but much more broadly, uh, I think the question is going to be asked even more strongly than it was before, whether our sort of current social model and economic model in particular is fit for purpose. And this is not a new question, right? This was rumbling under the surface before the financial crisis. It broke really out in the open. After the financial crisis, it has been a big part of the kind of ugly, aggressive politics of many Western countries uh, over the last five years. Uh, and I think it's going to, to force itself uh, onto our agenda even more strongly now. So, so I see this a little bit as a possible 1945 moment where we've gone through something, you know, we can't compare it, but something big and traumatic and that affects everyone. And we will say, well, you know, after these sacrifices, Clearly, we're going to have to reorganize things. We can't go back to the problems we used to have. And I think that will be reinforced by how everyone has now had to become conscious of what happens in our health systems, what happens to the people who staff our health systems and our care systems, uh, who are often far down the, um, the pay scale, but also in very precarious positions. All of these things were problems that people noticed beforehand, but they have now become... You know, incontrovertible. That's one issue. The other issue is, of course, what uh, what both Ivan and Beata pointed out about how our imagination has been expanded. And I think that's just crucial because it has been my belief for a very long time that as a journalist and writer, I've sort of looked at why things go wrong in various cases. When countries don't make the best choices, a lot of that comes down to sort of bad ideas among those who decide. We've just done something that was unthinkable two months ago you know, what else now could be thinkable? There's a chance that this is only the beginning, you know, a bit like the early phases of the financial crisis were only the beginning of some very big economic and political changes over the next decade. I think we're all obviously focused on the immediate, um, the lockdowns, the actual epidemic, of course, and our short-term horizon, you know, when do we get out of this? 
but if previous crises are anything to go by, then actually the effects will be much more long-lasting and unpredictable. But because of that, perhaps a little bit more amenable to being directed uh, if we put our collective minds to it. So I think that's a sort of optimistic take. I'd, I'd like to kind of put in this notion of opportunity here uh, as well as crisis. Ivan, opportunities more than, more than crises? Listen, both of them are there. Uh, I remember there was this old uh, children's book about the lord who jumped on his horse and uh, rode off in all directions at the same time. I do believe from this point of view, exactly this is the openness of the future. Because this type of idea that something unthinkable can happen is true not simply for people who want to go on a new social contract which is going to have uh, better salaries for doctors and nurses, but I do believe this is also going to empower certain very strong libertarian versions. Uh, I was watching certain protests in the United States where people basically have the posters, social distancing is equal to communism. Uh, so from this point of view, we're going to have a type of ideological debate, which before was very much marginal, which is going to move much more to the center. And from this point of view, you can expect that different countries and societies could end up with a very different social contract. If I may come in, Arcus. Uh, Please go ahead. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there is another theme Ivan has mentioned in some of his recent uh, writings. It's the young versus the old, how the crisis is unequal in health outcomes. And he was also linking it to the discussion about climate change. So um, I will let him discuss this, but let me add to this um, two more thoughts. Young people seem to have been hurt more economically during the crisis. Younger workers tend to be the first ones to be laid off. Um, young firms, which are inexperienced, less mature, set up by younger people are less resilient than older, more mature, um, small and medium enterprises. Also, it's not only the young people are taking the brunt of, of the economic crisis, they, are also, will, they also will be the ones who will be paying off debts that are currently being accumulated. So my question to Ivan is, will it change the dynamic of voting? Because typically it's the older people, the retired people who always faithfully show up in elections and with younger people, well, it's, it's, it depends. Will suddenly younger people be mobilized to watch out for their interests? And that kind of brings us back um, to the discussion um, that was going on earlier about demographic changes in Eastern Europe, uh, where many young people have left, and the political discussion was turning more towards redistribution rather than forward-looking policies, to issues that were more of interest uh, to elderly voters. Now, with some of the migrants going back, will this trend be reversed? Thank you for the question, and uh, I have been very much interested exactly in these questions, because if you can compare the climate change debate with the debate that started with the COVID-19 for the intergenerational uh, uh, relations, uh, during the climate change debate, the young people, with, with very legitimate reasons, were very much angry to the older generation, saying, you have a lifestyle and you have been basically treating nature in the way 
that is very difficult for us to survive. And also, if you see the results of the financial crisis in places like Italy or Spain, you're going to see a very disproportionately high unemployment among the young people. When the public health story of the COVID-19 started, suddenly it was the senior people that felt much more vulnerable. And now the problem of the solidarity was, please, young people, stay at home, change your lifestyles. Don't go partying because if you're going to do this, uh, probably we all can be infected, but the older people are going to die. And I do believe this much stronger interdependence. Some of the interesting things that happened is that for the first time, the older people realize how much they're dependent on young people. Because in financial terms, this was not the case. And you're absolutely right about voting. I'm very much interested what is going to happen with the uh, voting participation because they're going to be one more probably important change coming if this crisis is going to stay longer for a, a certain period of time. And this is that we are going to have either electronic voting or voting by post, something that uh, we can see in certain type of elections happening, how this is going to affect who is voting, who is not voting. Uh, but one of the things that I found critically important is that particularly in Eastern Europe, first you're right, some people are coming, and this is interesting, when they tell you stay at home, one of the questions is where is home? Uh, and for me, this was a personal experience, to be honest, we have been in Vienna when they started and we had to decide where we want to be quarantined, uh, in Vienna or back in Bulgaria. And most of our friends, we are living there in 10 years and we like the city very much. So everybody was telling us, stay in Vienna, there is a better hospital if something goes wrong. But the idea of the home is not simply the best place to live. You go back because you care about your parents who are there. You care because you basically have places like this that you can see uh, where you feel totally different because you have been here forever. So this idea of home is quite interesting. And this idea of home paradoxically goes for people that normally, I'm never asking this question, see if you go with the famous David Goodhart, people from somewhere and people from anywhere, COVID-19 came and people from anywhere should decide from where they are. You basically should find a place and this place cannot be anywhere. This is where you're going to stay during this period. And I find this quite important. I do believe this is going to change things. And there is also one factor that I find very important. During the financial crisis, the governments have been very much under attack and uh, they have been basically perceived as the allies of bankers and so on. This was a crisis that also gave certain confidence to the governments that people trust them if they are going to do something for the public good. If you see the support, for the governments in most of the country, it's quite high. You can also misuse this support. And nevertheless, the people are very much focused only on Hungary. By the way, Hungary is a great example. Uh, people are talking about Mr. Uh, Orban who used the crisis to consolidate power. To be honest, this is not true. He had all the power, so he didn't need to consolidate it because he had a constitutional majority in the parliament. So from this point of view, there was no need at all uh, for him basically to retire the parliament for the time of the crisis. But you have the, the situation in Poland where the decision was taken to have an elections in a moment in which free and fair competition is very much challenged by the fact that the crisis is making people less eager to participate. So for me, all this general atmosphere is going very much to push young people either to become much more active on the level of voting, but also participating, saying this is 
about us, or they can make people very much resignant. And this is why for me, this fear that if we're not going to have a street politics for a long period of time, this could be much more problematic for the future of democracy than any type of a legislation that they've been basically voted during this period. You're taking part in, a, in an event about COVID-19 and the shifting trajectories of history. With us are Ivan Krastyev, the EBRD's chief economist, Beata Yavorczyk, and the FT's Martin Sandbu. If you're on Facebook, please feel free to leave a question at the bottom of the, the live. If you're on Zoom, of course, you can use the chat. Uh, I just wanted to return to um, one observation by Martin here. Uh, Martin, you implied that it was almost 1945 all over again. I wanted to go to Beata about that because Beata, just the other day, you proposed a convening of a new Bretton Woods type conference. What would, who would be at that Bretton Woods conference and what would be at the top of its agenda? So in 1944, there was a conference, there was a discussion a year prior to the end of the war about what kind of world um, there was going to be. And I think we need to think about this now because we are at the crossroads. I mean, as Ivan was saying, you know, things can go left or right. So globalization, future of trade is one of those issues that we can see either the world turning towards protectionism or countries, willing countries can express their support uh, for free trade. Because as countries subsidize the firms, as they are spending enormous amounts of money, it would be very easy going forward for governments to introduce countervailing duties. These duties will be legal under the World Trade Organization rules. These are duties that are designed to neutralize subsidized imports. So in a sense, in the absence of any action, we may be going that way because the public, which has images of um, restrictions on exports, shortages of equipment, may find it very attractive um, to reverse part of globalization. Um, the other issue that we should be talking about is the future of travel. You know, what will happen to business travel? Will borders remain closed? Will there be health checks? How are we going to deal with agricultural workers or um, cross-border uh, export of services. So exports of services, people moving from one country to provide um, services exports in another. What about debt issues? You know, going forward, many developing countries will be highly indebted and we'll need to have a conversation about it. So I think, you know, one should start thinking about it now. Let me stop here. Martin, is that roughly yeah, what you had in mind? Uh, I mean, that, that's obvious. That's part of it. That's kind of the international dimension. Uh, I mean, Bretton Woods is a really interesting uh, case. Um, the FT ran an editorial about a month ago. That was, I think, one of our most read editorials ever. It, it said the crisis has laid bare the frailty of our social contract. And it made the point that in 1944, the leaders of who the countries that would win the war, they didn't wait for the end of the war to start planning how to win the peace. Bretton Woods was part of that. The UN was another part of that. The whole international governance system that was set up was 
thought of, you know, even earlier than 1944, as, as early as 1940. To get back to this question about whether the crisis, will, is it a threat or an opportunity for globalization? It obviously can go both ways. As, as Ivan pointed out, you know, the openness means that we could go in either direction. And uh, he mentioned, you know, libertarians, but you could also think about anti-globalization movement will have strong arguments for why it's important now to keep borders more closed and so on than before. But psychologically, you know, there's a there's the opposite effect, uh, which is this. So Ivan is quite right. You know, you have to choose where you want to geographically be quarantined because physically we can only be in one place. But as he also mentioned, we are a lot of us are really following what's happening in other countries. For some of us, that's because we have personal connections. So you know, I sit in London, but I follow very closely how the lockdown policies are, are done in places where I have family, like in Norway or Poland, or where I lived for a long time in New York. Uh, and many people will be doing that, and even those who don't have the personal connections, partly because of the amazing technology we have now that also makes this lockdown very different from how it would ever have been before. Uh, people are really aware of what other countries do. So it's not only the comparison between liberal democracies and China that's relevant, but comparison between liberal democracies, I think. So the fact that people are seeing we have something to learn from one another I think is itself a sort of globalizing impulse. I think you will see these sort of re-globalization, if you like, after the lockdown, but it may happen at a much more regional level, that people might be a bit more discriminate about who is a like-minded country. Martin, just back to you for a second. Um, you've also written a book and it's also coming out very soon. I believe the title is The Economics of Belonging. Have you <laughs> had to, was there a chance to write a, a a late um, update chapter at the end to take in to take into account everything that's happened in the last few weeks. No, you, you know, it's very kind to to mention it, but it's a bit of a sore point because it was sort of sent off to press just at the last minute before uh, before everything happened, um, uh, and I sort of begged to be allowed to put in a sort of one page at least a sort of extra preface or something, but it was too late. So I'm sort of in awe of Ivan who's sitting here on the panel and. Uh, you know, I finished a book just as the crisis hit. He's finished one after the crisis hit. So, so I'm very envious. Uh, no, so the answer is I didn't. But uh, what I hinted at in a, in a previous remark was that I actually think on the whole, the COVID crisis is emphasizing and highlighting exactly the same underlying fractures and flaws in our economic model uh, that were already pressing themselves to the surface before. So in a sense... I see this less as a, a big change and more as a catalyst or accelerator of processes that were already there. Now, of course, I have a book to sell, so I would say that, you know, my book remains relevant. Um, but, but I think so many of the things that have impressed themselves on us in this lockdown, the, um, the kind of vulnerability inherent in globalization, the uh, effect and the, and the way, the way a sort of polarized economy and greater inequality has actually hampered government's ability to do the right thing. It's hard to, for example, send out benefits to people who are sort of on the margin of the, of the labor markets. That's something we realize now that governments struggle logistically to reach everyone. But that's because people have been left on the margins for a long time. We have realized that there are people out there taking care of the elderly in care homes who are very poorly paid, who are very poorly equipped and who have been neglected. So all of these things that some of us have been pointing out, have been looking at, um, the kind of last couple of 
decades of economic changes, you know, didn't put our economies and our governments in, a, in the best possible place to respond to this, uh, this crisis. But I think that is going to reinforce uh, the judgment that something has to change. Uh, and in that sense, a bit of a 1945 moment. Um, if I can go back to something that was mentioned earlier, because I have a, questions, a question for both Beata and Ivan that I've been dying to ask them, if, if I may, about, about Eastern Europe. I mean, it's two different questions, but you can both answer both. Um, uh, Beata, we've talked about this before, that uh, Eastern Europe has done pretty well in managing the epidemic in terms of case numbers and death numbers and so on. Um, and, uh, and we haven't really heard much or read much about why that is. Is there something specific about the region, you think, that has helped with that response? Or is it just, you know, that they were later, they had more time to prepare? Is there something different in Eastern Europe from, let's say, the Scandinavians or New Zealand, who've also managed well? And then, then for Ivan, Ivan's previous book uh, very wonderfully reflected about uh, what he called something like a sort of imitation complex in Eastern Europe after 1989. Eastern Europe had to develop by imitating the West and that caused resentment. And it struck me early in the lockdown that at least for a few weeks, the West was imitating the old East. Suddenly we all had to get used to queuing and to rationing and to some sort of collective logic, completely subordinating individual freedoms and so on. And so I'm just curious if Ivan could kind of turn around his reflection from the previous book um, and say if this matters at all. Um, so I guess um, let me take question Martin asked, why did Eastern Europe, did why did it do better or has it done better? Well, certainly the lag um, in the spread of the pandemic helped. So Eastern Europe had the benefit of seeing what, what was going on in Italy um, and these images were um, pre-convincing that decisive action must be taken. And I think Eastern European countries acted very fast and in a very decisive manner. I think what's also quite interesting is um, the link between polarization and social compliance. So th there is a recent study from Stanford University which shows that political polarization meant that a lot of messages related to COVID um, were interpreted very differently by Republicans and Democrats. So for instance, in Republican states, people were much more, much less likely to follow social distancing guidelines. And in a sense, you know, going to a restaurant was more of an act of defiance. And um, the researchers did uh, phone surveys asking Republican and Democratic voters about their perceptions of how bad things will be, trying to incentivize them with money to give accurate predictions. Um, and they confirmed this view that the perceptions differed along the party lines. And to me, what's quite interesting is that um, in Eastern Europe, polarization doesn't seem to have affected compliance with the regulation. But perhaps Ivan, who is in Bulgaria, can um, comment more on this. Uh, Martin, thank you for the question. It is great. I remember reading about the 56, 56 years old Czech 
who in the beginning of the crisis said, listen, I have the feeling that I'm back in my childhood. Uh, all the borders are closed. People are queuing for toilet paper. I have been here before. Uh, but the interesting story about uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and I very much agree with Piata, I just want to go to two other factors that played a very important role. You see a governments that were kind of not very cooperative in the very early phase of the crisis, but at the same time, they start to copy the same policies. And talking, and this type of uh, the same lockdowns, how you're doing this, even in countries in which you have just 20 or 30 people infected. And I do believe this comes very much from something that uh, Frank Knight wrote in 1921, making these distinctions between uncertainty and risk. The problem with the COVID-19 is that in the beginning of the crisis, you simply don't know what to do. You don't know much about the virus. You don't have any information about the effect. Uh, so governments started to copy each other because when you don't know what to do, what, do what others do because otherwise your citizens are going to keep you responsible for not doing it and always work with the worst case scenario. So this is why Central and East European governments were very eager and very keen, all of them, in very early period to start with a very uh, kind of a tough measures and lockdowns. And secondly, I do believe paradoxically part of the success of Central and Eastern Europe is also rooted, at least this is my Bulgarian experience, in a very strong mistrust of people in the capacity of our public health system. And there is a lot of talk about this. It was quite uh, unreformed and underfunded. And also don't forget a huge number of medical personnel has left Central and Eastern Europe for the last decades. Just for the last uh, four years or three years, 10,000 doctors has left Romania only. I'm saying this because if you have this mistrust in the healthcare system for your social distancing, is a critically important. Uh, you basically try to show that uh, you don't want to end up in hospital because not that you don't trust the doctors and not that you don't trust the nurses. And also for the doctors and the nurses, it was a very difficult situation because at least in the Bulgarian case, almost 50% of medical personnel is older than 55. So you can imagine the level of the risk these people were taking in the early stage when there was not enough masks and not enough protection. And by the way, one of the interesting story in which Eastern Europe, which otherwise is a very positive story, uh, is slightly more negative comparing with places like Austria or Germany, is the percent of the medical personnel infected. Uh, so from this point of view, you have these very strange dynamics, uh, but I do believe, and here comes the problem of the imitation. After this crisis, what also East Europeans uh, were claiming is that it's not that there is a West, which is very much unified and everybody is doing fine. Obviously, Germans and Austrians, at least for this moment, are doing better than the Italians. And so from this point of view, there is a kind of a comfort on Central and East European stuff that we are not as bad and it's such a difficult situation and everybody was telling us at certain point of time. So uh, you know, psychologically, it's going to be interesting. A lot of people came back in Bulgaria. Figures are, of course, unreliable, but around 200,000 people came back, people that have been working at this moment somewhere in Western Europe, uh, came back uh, after the quarantine started. And what these people are going to do, how they're going to adjust, it's now very interesting what's going to happen on the labor market of Central and Eastern Europe, because there was a shortage of people in most of our countries. But are they going to find the jobs that they're looking for? Thank you. Um, if we can switch now to questions and answers from our audience, um, just a reminder, if you're 
watching on Facebook Live or you're listening to a recording of this event sometime in the future, that you're taking part in an event called COVID-19 and the Shifting Trajectories of History. Our special guest is Ivan Kristev. Uh, with him, we have Beata Yavacic and Martin Sandu. My name is Marcus Warren. One question from a former colleague, Betsy Nelson. Um, I'm going to ask all three members of the panel, um, where will we see the leadership to shape the future, given the growth of nationalism? Um, let's go with, well, who wants to go first? I'll, I'll go first, but, but very quickly, because the others will have better thoughts than me. But, but it seems to me that the leadership, uh, given the temptation of nationalism, will be at the national level, actually, because there's, there's no getting around that the action has been at the nation state level, largely. But, but that shouldn't really have been a, su a surprise because the nation state remains where most authority and power lies. It's, it, it is only nation states that can implement the sort of lockdowns and, and quarantines we've had. So I think we're going to have to look to national leaders to offer to collaborate and get together to collaborate, which is presumably how it has always been. And even in the EU, ultimately, it's in the hands of national leaders, whether they agree on doing something together. And the... Uh, the EU institutions can really only help with what they are willing to do. And I think that'll be true globally too. If I may follow up on this and say that at the international level, I would hope that the EU and China and other countries take the lead on international trade. I think at the moment, probably there is no appetite in the US um, to express commitment to free trade. Uh, but I would be very curious um, to hear Ivan's thoughts on the European Union. We actually haven't talked much about it. How the EU will emerge from this crisis? Yes, in fact, if I could just jump in there, we do have a very good question from Toma Pavlov Ivan or Ivan. Would the role of Central and Eastern European countries in the EU, EU change after the pandemic? And will we have more unity or disunity in the EU? So let's have a mix of those two questions, Ivan. No, it's it's a, it's a great uh, uh, it's one of the great unknown, uh, starting with the EU for several reasons. Because what was uh, already said, if you compare with the global financial crisis, the American leadership was there. We can like or dislike, and by the way, Britain and uh, Brown played their role, but G20 came very much as a response of it. Uh, and the idea is, it is a global crisis; there should be a global response. Of course, public health is also different to the extent that, for example, on the European level, there is not much kind of a powers that European Union has on the level of the public health. Uh, and the story is to what extent the European Union can replace the United States in, in any way as somebody who is triggering this type of a common response. I do believe that uh, uh, some of the European leaders were quite kind of aware of this. I am reminded of the article that German federal president Steinmeier published in the Financial Times with three other leaders. And the message was, okay, we cannot rely on this moment on the Americans. To be honest, you cannot also very much rely on the Chinese because they went in their own war trying to basically convince everybody uh, that they were not the one that uh, are responsible for anything. But can European Union do it? And here, I don't know. Uh, to be absolutely honest, I'm neither pessimist nor optimist because, and here's the paradox that I see, European Union was always, and he cannot be different, was one of the agent of opening, opening in trade terms, opening uh, uh, in political terms. 
Uh, at the same time now, part of the unity of the European Union probably is going to come from the deglobalization moment. If there's going to be a protectionist moment, the only protectionism, effective protectionism possible in Europe is on the level of the European Union. I cannot imagine how Bulgaria goes protectionist. I cannot see how we're going to do it. And from this point of view, it's interesting how the European Union can also use some of the pressure of deglobalization also to put pressure on some of the much more nationalist minded leaders to tell them, listen, if they're not going to be European Union, what you're going to do? You're going to move all the medicine production back in, in the, your own countries and you're going to trade with whom? Uh, and from this point of view, this is an interesting crisis because on the surface, you see a lot of national sentiments on the level of governments, on the level of population, but also this is a crisis much more than the previous ones that also shows the limits of economic nationalism in Europe on the level of the nation state. And here's the problem of Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah. If I, if I can, just, we've had another uh, very good question this time uh, um, privately by Zoom to me from Tim Judah of The Economist, uh, also on the Bulgarian theme. Could it be that with the coming recession, and as Ivan already said, 200,000 Bulgarians already returned home, that maybe this will mark the beginning uh, of the end of the chapter of migration from Eastern Europe to Western Europe, or maybe it won't make much difference? Which one? No, I, I don't believe this is a very interesting question. And by the way, it started even before when in countries like Poland, there was a huge debate to what extent Brexit can bring back uh, some of uh, the labor force, uh, because we have been discussing it before, Part of uh, the political sentiment during the refugee crisis in Central and Eastern Europe was not coming from the fear of the migrants who never came up to Central and Eastern Europe to stay. It was very much the trauma of the people that have left. And in some countries, we're talking about the big numbers. So these people are coming back. The problem is what kind of jobs they're going to find. And by the way, what kind of political participation they're going to come. Uh, and. Uh, uh, I do believe that there was already a certain trend of people deciding to come back and to look for better options. This could be a great opportunity for Central and East European countries, which has a huge demographic problems. Uh, and I do believe the demographic impact of this is going to be very, very interesting. Uh, so, but is it going to be a long-term effect? It's also going very, really, very much to depend how the governments are going to give an opportunity for these people to do something at home. Uh, another very good question. Um, I think this has come from Facebook Live. Uh, forgive me on the pronunciation from Eriosa Pula. I'm going to slightly rephrase the question. I think it does follow on from the previous one, but what are the prospects for the small countries? of Europe, and he, he mentions uh, specifically Kosovo. I, I say he, it could be a she, of course. Um, but what are the prospects for perhaps these smaller countries that are, that are in the EBRD regions, but um, that really don't have a, a lot of natural resources? How does the coronavirus pandemic leave them? Let me comment on this, if I may, at this sort of higher level. If the world turn somewhat protectionist um, and there will be little progress uh, on the international stage, countries will turn towards preferential trade agreements. And that may mean that the EU may be more interested in deeper integration with its neighborhood. So if that's the case, uh, that could present some opportunities for small countries in EBRD regions. Uh, but let me throw another question at, at uh, Martin and Ivan, if I may. 
What also is changing in the EU is Brexit, right? So before it was French-German duo plus the UK. Who will now take the third position within the European Union? Is this an opening for an Eastern European country? Yeah, well, uh, just a couple of reflections on that. Um, I mean, I think the immediate answer is that the door has been open for Poland to take play a bigger role for a long time. It's just it's put itself at, uh, you know, at loggerheads really with, with much of Western Europe, but the size and increasingly the economic heft of Poland, you know, makes clear that that's the destination if it, if it plays its cards right. Um, it is what the sixth or seven, sixth, fifth or sixth biggest by population, uh, and it has strong growth and will continue to have it. So, so I think at some at some point, the younger generation is uh, definitely making its demands heard in this uh, this end of the Zoom call. Um, but if I can tie this question and the sort of previous one together a bit um, on on small countries, not just Eastern Europe, but but in general, I mean that this this crisis has been a triumph for most small countries. There's the exception of Belgium. But apart from that, most European small countries and also countries like New Zealand are the ones that have done the best in terms of containing the, the pandemic and managing the lockdown in you know, the, the minimally damaging way. And this kind of dissolves or, or changes some of the old, uh, the old kind of axis of opposition in Europe as well. I mean, think about Greece and Portugal. I mean, they were part of the very bad southern periphery in the financial crisis, but they've done very well with uh, COVID, much better than France, much better than Britain, uh, and so on. So I think if anyone comes out of this, it seems to be the governing model or the scale of these smaller countries and how they manage to, to run things. So I think that is going to be something to watch as people cast about for kind of governance models. Uh, on Brexit, it's true that it, it changes the, uh, the sort of geometry of, of Europe very significantly. Uh, but it's not at all clear that a new trio is the result, partly because you know, Poland isn't in a place to, to fit that, um, the British place. Some other countries have kind of taken it occasionally, like the Netherlands, uh, but the size isn't the same. So the balance will have to change um, and I think a lot actually depends on where France chooses to go. And France is a bit torn, I think, between trying to get back to this Franco-German leadership duo, but being frustrated with that and not quite being willing to kind of go off on its own and be the leader of a more sort of Latin camp, which is the other kind of natural place. So, so France is in a kind of indeterminate place, hasn't really made up its mind, I think. And for as long as that doesn't change, I think you'll probably find quite changing constellations and a lot of unpredictability. And sometimes that can work. Uh, just today, the FT writes that France and the Netherlands are, are issuing a joint non-paper on carbon border taxation. And these are countries that have traditionally been at very different ends of the free trade debate. So, you know, I, this isn't an answer because I'm saying it's unpredictable, but it's a little bit like, you know, taking one stabilizing beam out of a construction and everything kind of has to move around a bit before it settles anywhere. We've got another very good question by Tudor Hanea. Um, I think this has arrived from uh, via Facebook. There's been a lot of talk about relocating production facilities from China, Asia, back to Europe to prevent future supply chain shortages. 
how much merit do the panelists give this? Um, Beata, I know this is one of your um, one of your favorite subjects. Should we start with you? So I think re changes to global supply chains have already been happening prior um, to the pandemic. There already has been pressure to bring production back. Um, automation means that labor costs matter less. So that is making some reshoring possible. Now there will be more attention being paid to resilience. I think um, in the crisis, we all realize how dependent we are on production in China for medical supplies, for um, medications, for equipment. Um, so there will be pressure um, coming, for instance, from rating agencies, which I think will be looking at resilience of supply chains of firms they are rating. I think there will be um, just re-optimization done by firms. Because you know we have a combination of two shocks. On the one hand, we have pandemic. At the same time, we have uh, changes to, to policies. We have U.S.-China trade war that has not been resolved. We have a lot of uncertainty whether there will be more protectionist going forward. Um, so this will lead firms um, to rethink what they are doing. Martin, what about yeah. relocating and global, global supply chains? Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a difference between trying to predict what will happen and, and what should happen, because, of course, you might see sort of renationalization of a lot of production as a policy to try to become more resilient. But, but I think that's a very bad idea because relocation is not the same as resilience. Uh, of course, a lot of countries were caught short. Uh, they didn't have the equipment they needed and then they realized it was all produced in China. In fact, in Hubei province, a lot of this medical equipment. So it was, uh, it was very unfortunate, but there's nothing in having global supply chains that prevents you from stockpiling essential goods. Switzerland is reasonably good at that. In fact, it's much cheaper to have large stockpiles for epidemic preparedness, for example, if you are globalized and get the most cost-efficient production. So I think it's wrong to think of these as traded off against each other. Uh, if you think more ahead and you're willing to pay the price for having some goods in storage that you will never use, then uh, you can probably more cheaply uh, prepare for pandemics or other disasters uh, while you are globalized. So that, that's one point. Another point is, it's surprising actually how fast we have seen domestic production lines in manufacturing be retooled to make you know, medical gowns or ventilators or things like that, which I thought was much harder than it seems to have been. Of course, that's not optimal, but it does say that actually the flexibility is a bit greater than, than maybe we think. Uh, so I think I would recommend for policymakers who are charged with preparedness to also be, you know, just basically be more knowledgeable about what the capacity within a country for quickly changing and requisitioning private sector productive capacity is. Most countries have legislation for this, or they can introduce it if they need to. And with some good planning, you could probably have done quite a lot better, even with the manufacturing capacity you still retain in today's globalized world. Um, and then the final thing, 
I'd quite like us to, and I'd like to sort of propose a neologism, if you like. We, we talk about supply chains, and, th and that's correct. But think about a chain. You know, a chain is a chain of links. One link's brink and the whole, one link breaks and the whole chain breaks. Now, if supply and relationships were a little bit more like networks or webs or meshes, by which I mean don't have a single supplier into each link in the chain, Webs and meshes, you can lose a couple of threads here and there and it still holds together. Uh, so, so I'd like us to think a bit about how we can engineer global or at least regional supply networks and supply meshes or supply webs, uh, which means in practice that at each stage in the production process, you actually have realistic alternatives, different suppliers. That of course is a little bit more costly. It's a bit of duplication but it can be done and it's much, much more resilient without giving up on the benefits of uh, the scale of global production. Ivan, your thoughts on global supply yeah. chains and global networks? No, I, I, I very much in the, same, uh, in the same direction. There are going to be also public pressure on the governments to stockpile. Uh, and this is not going to be only on masks and others. In a certain way, uh, people want to be sure that when the next crisis comes, and the problem is that we don't know what kind of crisis is going to be. It is up to the government to stockpile. It's not up to the companies. So there are going to be some relocation. Probably there are going to be some stockpiling. But also what I do believe is also happening is that all the country starts to push for much more also security perspective on some of the economic relations. And I do believe this is going to affect areas on which are not related directly to the public health issue of this. Uh, for example, I do believe for China it's going to be much more difficult to make their arguments for Huawei and for 5G system and so on in a post-COVID-19 world than it was in a pre-COVID-19 world. And I can see much more arguments for the European Union to try to support Ericsson and Nokia coming with the European kind of a product like this. So there was something importantly that has been broken also on the level of trust on all sides. And I don't blame China. I do believe that the United States is now so very much instrumentalizing China, the President Trump to explain some of the failure of the American government to do with the crisis. Uh, but you're going to see part of it. And from this point of view, strangely enough, while the European Union, in my view, should stay and will stay as uh, the major kind of a political force pushing for the issues of openness, I'm not going to be surprised if the consolidation of the European Union is going to come also from this pressure to deglobalization and regionalization. Uh, and uh, going back to something that you discuss about who is going to be the big third in the European Union, this is the moment in which I'm very much interested what is going to happen in the imagination of some of the political leaders, and particularly in the Polish case. Because Poland is the big Central and East European country, it matters strategically. Is Poland really going to try to see its sovereignty simply in opposition to Brussels? Or is it going basically to see it differently as playing in a much bigger role in the European Union and the moment in which European Union starts to talk about strategic sovereignty? And for me, this is a question that are going to face different national leaders, probably also going to be decided on different type of national elections. Uh, but something has changed for Europe. And I do believe what for me has changed is that in all previous crises, you believe that just muddling through was enough for the European Union to carry on. Now the world outside of Europe has changed so dramatically that I do believe for the first time we don't have this muddling through option. Thank you, Ivan. Just one very quick final question from our 
um, from, from our audience from Volker Hans Recker. Uh, the global debt burden pre-COVID is more than 30% higher than 10 years ago. Add to that the fallout from COVID and we arrive at astronomical figures versus global debt to GDP. How can this global debt burden ever be settled? What do you think will be the social consequences from this enormous debt burden? So a quick answer, quick answers from our three members of our panel. I can start if you like. Um, I mean, again, it's a bit of a 1945 moment, right? Where every country came out with huge debt burdens. And the answer, of course, is that it wasn't settled. It was gradually eroded. It shrank relative to GDP because of growth, because of inflation to some extent, and because central banks kept interest rates affordable for governments. And we'll see something like that this time around. Uh, I think in the European case, because the debt burdens, the debt ratios will now be so high, this is a little bit along the lines of Ivan's last comment, uh, it will at some point be impossible to sort of push this debt question down the line. And there will be, you know, basically some decision will have to be made about monetizing it or restructuring it. Uh, I think maybe some soft restructuring will, will happen. Uh, but in general, I think you will find that a lot of this debt will not be paid back. It will sort of be, be sunk in some sense. I think that in the private sector, where there are also going to be big debt problems, you'll have to accept that there will be, again, a lot of restructuring through some sort of bankruptcy processes or bailouts. The question is, can that be done in a politically acceptable way, a transparent way? And, and above all, not to repeat the mistake from the global financial crisis, where the longer countries waited to try to decide who picks up the bill, the more growth was slowed down because of this debt overhang and nobody knew how it would be paid back. So on these things, it's better to act early and quite radically and then let things pick up afterwards. We'll see if that happens now. I think there's a pretty strong case for it. Beata? I couldn't agree more um, with Martin that acting fast is preferable to acting slowly. And I think that Europe and the rich world will try to grow out of debt as, and, inf you know, and use inflation to limit the debt burden, as Martin was saying. I think the interesting question is what will happen to the developing country debt? Um, because I think it will be hard to sell debt forgiveness to voters in rich countries. It will be hard to convince voters in rich countries that you know now is the time to forgive debt to poor countries. And also a lot of um, debt is owed to China and this will require cooperation with China, which I think will complicate things politically. So in a sense, it's a million dollar question now, what will happen to debt of developing countries? Ivan, final word from you. Two issues. One is, and this is uh, going to be a tricky situation because voters, particularly those that have been socialized in the last 30 years, they have a huge fear of big numbers. When you hear trillion and you're already panicking. Uh, and from this point of view, uh, what is interesting about the debt issue is that this is very much back to our intergenerational contract that we have been talking about. The reason that governments really don't like inflation in European democracies is that all the voters, the, particularly the retired people, don't like it. And this is people who vote. Uh, and we're going to have a period in which 
basically we're going to get more older people in our democracies that at the same time we're going to need inflation in order to go beyond all this. So how this is going to be solved politically, in my view, is one of the most important things. And this is particularly important for countries like Germany, because we are talking about many things that are going to happen and not happen in Europe. Uh, but behind every decision, there are winners and losers on the political side. And from this point of view, the debt issue is very much there. And when we talked about uh, uh, the, the global south, and I was very much struck by one prediction that remittances are going to decline 20% compared with the 5% that was declined during the global financial crisis. One thing that also can very easily face European Union is that as a result of this crisis, you're going to end up with a much more economic migrants on the European borders. Uh, because this type of a huge decline of money going to the global south is something that is going to push people to do something and they're not going to have many options. Thank you, Ivan. That could be the cue for a whole new podcast, I think. Um, thank you, Ivan Krastev. Thank you, Beata Yavorczyk. Thank you, Martin Sandby. Thank you, everyone who's taken part, uh, either on Zoom or on Facebook Live. Thank you for uh, such a great and stimulating conversation. We'll be posting a podcast, a recording of today's event very soon, so you can listen to it all over again. You could download it on iTunes, and remember that reviewing and rating it will help others to find it. My name is Marcus Warren. I'm looking forward to our next discussion. Stay safe and goodbye. You are listening to Coronavirus Special with Yvonne Krostev, Beata Yvorchik, and Martin Sandbu. Until next time. Brought to you by EBRD.